So in the Sunday school hour, we had the opportunity to consider a few things regarding the, the doctrines of eschatology. There's really two uh, meanings to the word, which is not uncommon uh, in the English language. In any language, words have different meanings. Uh, and uh, the word, the same word, depending on how you use it based upon its context, can mean something entirely different. Dr. Allison told us years ago, when you use the word run, what does the word run mean? And most people would say you put one foot in front of another at a rapid pace and you get to a place quicker than if you would walk. And then he said, well, is that what it means when I tell you that the one team ran up the score against the other team or that the plant runs up the wall? Uh, Based upon the context, the word run can mean totally different things. And one of the dangers of biblical interpretation is when people tell you this is what the word means and they only say that's what it means all throughout the New Testament or the Old Testament, depending on on whether it's a Greek or Hebrew word. Languages are are that way. Words mean different things. And, And sometimes the same word can be referring to different aspects of the same meaning. And I think that's what we find when we use the English word eschatology. Uh, We already considered in Sunday school that the word is made up of two Greek words, eschatos, which means last or final, and then logos, which is the study of or the word concerning this topic. So the word, the English word eschatology is a transliteration of two Greek words, which is the study of the last things. Most often when it's applied... Uh, It is referring to the events immediately before and including the return of Christ that he has promised in the word. When most people talk about what is when they when you're asked the question, what's your view of eschatology? Most often they're referring to something in the future. It's interesting that when you see how the Greek word is used in the scriptures, uh, it's applied to more than just the immediate return of Christ. We mentioned in Sunday school that the prophet Joel talked about in the last days, he prophesied that in the last days that the Lord would pour out his spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters would prophesy and and so on. In the last days, the Lord would do that. Well, the day of Pentecost came, the, the, the apostles began to speak in tongues, which ironically enough was an earthly language. It wasn't some goofy heavenly language. It was an earthly language that people that were from different parts of the world, as the apostles were speaking, they all heard him speak in their own language, which obviously was a phenomenon. This had never happened before. It was that that one person speaking could be heard in multiple different languages. It was obviously uh, a, a gift that was given by the Lord to be able to communicate in these earthly languages. They didn't need an interpreter on that day. They all understood what was taking place. And Peter actually quotes from the the prophecy of Joel and said, what you're witnessing isn't the fact that some men are drunk and there's all kinds of weird things going on. These things that we're witnessing is a fulfillment of what Joel said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And so of the many things we can say about the day of Pentecost, we can say this much, that the the prophet Joel, who prophesied of of that time, said that that was the last days. And so, again, when we use the word eschatology, even though we often are referring to those events immediately surrounding the Lord's return, eschatology proper 
It's just like theology, right? Theology can include, you know, anthropology. It can include, you know, your study of, of eschatology and sin and all these other doctrines in the broad term of theology. But then there's also an aspect of theology, which is you're studying about God himself. Well, eschatology is in the same way. You have the broad meaning, which is the entire New Testament period, at least from the day of Pentecost on. But then most often it's referred to, when you use the term eschatology, it's dealing with those events surrounding the Lord's return. That's actually how I want to take it this morning, in dealing with those events surrounding the Lord's return. Now, if you've been in any kind of organized evangelical or fundamentalist church for any length of time, you will understand that just as in the United States, they call the United States a melting pot, right? Because there's so many different ethnicities that have all come to dwell in this country. It's one of the things that is, is nice about the United States. We have so many different cultures. They've all come to the United States with that one thing in mind, usually to make a better life for themselves, right? It's a melting pot. Well, when it comes to eschatology, the organized visible church is a melting pot of all kinds of views with regard to the Lord's return. And so when you begin to consider the events surrounding the Lord's return, it's with an understanding that there are a lot of different views. There are a lot of different views concerning what will take place when the Lord's return, when the Lord returns. Now, in our denomination, we give what's what we often refer to as liberty of conscience. Uh, for God's people to hold one of the three major views. And those views usually differ on the period of time known as, as the millennium. But on, in, in regard to viewing the events surrounding the Lord's return, we believe there are fundamentals you have to hold to. That the Lord is returning visibly to the earth. That God's people will receive a glorified body. That there will be a new heavens and a new earth and that the sin that the ungodly have committed, they will be judged for. There's a day of reckoning. All these things are major events that are fundamentals. If you deny them, you're denying truth, and you're actually in heresy. Okay? But within that camp, there are, there, are, there are many different views on areas that we in our denomination don't view as fundamentals. And there's a reason why we don't view them as fundamentals, because on some of these things, we, the Scripture is just not clear enough to lead you to one interpretation. And so we, it's with that understanding that well, within the free church, we're, we're well within our rights to disagree on some of these aspects concerning the Lord's return. Uh, but it's with that understanding as well that we want to make sure that we search the scriptures like the Bereans to make sure that the things that we're being taught are right. Simply because we live, give liberty of conscience doesn't mean that we allow anyone to get up and spout anything off. We have to test everything based upon the 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 scriptures, the, the, touch, the, the touchstone that we have, which is the word of God. Now, just like any other doctrine, the areas that we focus upon to support our doctrine are the epistles and then the gospels, those areas of the New Testament that the Lord has given us in order to make doctrine clear. And we, we dealt with this again in Sunday school. You don't go to the mysterious books to form your view of the atonement. You don't go to the, the passages that are written in, in typical fashion or symbolic fashion in order to prove the intercessory work of Christ. There are so many passages in the epistles and in the gospels where those doctrines are clearly stated that you don't have to go to the unclear 
to interpret those passages. And that's actually a rule of, of interpreting the scriptures. You always go to the clear and interpret the unclear in light of the clear. Well, it's my hope today that I want to take you to three passages taken from the epistles. Remember, the epistles and the gospels were given to us mainly to set doctrine clear, that we can see and understand clear doctrine. I want to take you to, to the three main passages in the epistles that deal with the Lord's return and draw some conclusions from them that I would hope would give you some guidelines and give you some uh, structure in your view of the Lord's return. And so the three major passages in the epistles uh, are the two passages that we read earlier, which is 1 Corinthians 15 and then 2 Peter chapter 3, and then also the middle of those two, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And my goal is to consider this theme of eschatology based upon the language that we find in these epistles and to be able to draw some conclusions about the Lord's return that will serve as a good foundation for us. Now, we can still have differences of opinion, but I think if you compare these three passages together and draw out of all three of these passages the commonality that they share, it will help you eliminate a lot of confusion that is often promoted as biblical teaching uh, regarding the Lord's return. And so I want to just deal with, as I said, these three passages and make some, some observations. First of all, my first observation is that all the major eschatological events, all the major things that happen when the Lord's return happen at one moment in time. Now, if you've been instructed in, in end, end times doctrine, you'll realize that that is opening a can of worms because the strongest attraction that is often associated with eschatology is, is the period that takes place wedged between some of these events. But I'm actually making the statement that all of the major eschatological events surrounding the Lord's return happen at one moment in time. Now, the three major passages, as I said, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's the first one. And what, what is associated with the Lord's return in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Well, as I said, it's the great resurrection chapter. So it makes sense that it deals with the resurrection of the body. In a certain way, 1 Thessalonians 4 deals with it a little bit as well. It doesn't deal with the actual language that talks about corruptible, putting on incorruption and so on. It does kind of mention that those that have died will precede us, right? So there's a reference there to the new bodies, but 1 Corinthians 15 is usually the passage you go to to prove that this vile body that we possess now will go into the grave and it will be raised incorruptible. It will be given new life. The scoffers may mock and say, well, I don't believe that can happen. And yet we witness it all the time. Something dead going into the ground and new life appearing. I've spent almost 30 years in the green industry, Okay, And whether I'm sowing grass seed or putting corn in the ground or planting up whatever, the whole principle behind seed planting is you put something dead in the ground and life enters that dead seed. How does it happen? I have no idea. I've given the majority of my life to studying and to be involved in the green industry, and I still can't tell you 
how new life comes to a dead seed. And yet we see it all the time. Weeds, seeds, all dead. And yet this time of the year, all of a sudden things are springing to life. Why? Because the dead seeds of those things are in the ground. Something happens in, in the kernel of that seed that given the right set of circumstances, sunlight, water, whatever, all of a sudden life appears. I don't know how it happens. And yet we see it all the time and we just accept it. That's the way the world is, right? And yet there would be some that would think that if you believe that your dead body, once it goes into the tomb, at some point in the future will be given life, they think you're nuts. We see it all the time. And yet for some reason I'm crazy to believe that. Not only am I not crazy to believe it based upon what I see in the world all the time, the scripture says it's going to happen. And so if I can see it happen in the natural world, and God tells me it's going to happen in the, in the, in the revelation that he has given in his word, the two testimonies that God has given in nature and in the scripture, I have no reason to doubt it. And so that's what's dealt with in 1 Corinthians 15, the, the new incorruptible body, but then also a very important uh, theme is dealt with in 1 Corinthians 15. When we receive the new body, Death is swallowed up in victory. No more death. Okay? So, 1 Corinthians 15 deals with the resurrection of the body for the believer. It's a glorified body, and death is swallowed up in victory. No more death. The middle passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we spent our time in the Sunday school hour, deals with what we often refer to as the rapture, where the Lord descends from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now they are coming with him, the souls of those that are already with Christ, but then the dead in Christ shall rise first. Their bodies will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's often referred to in evangelical and fundamental circles as the rapture. Okay, When the Lord returns and we go to meet him in the air, and so we are, we are ever with the Lord. The last of the passages we read is, for, is 2 Peter chapter 3, and it deals with the new heavens and the new earth. It isn't just dealing with the new heavens and new earth, but it deals with judgment for sin, which in a certain way is by implication, right? It's by implication because the world is burned up, the old world is done away with. The context of that promise that that's going to happen is in the context of the scoffers, right? At the very beginning of the passage, uh, that, that in the last days scoffers will come saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Okay, It says that they're scoffers and they're walking after their own lusts. And they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Okay, It isn't just that they're denying the Lord's return. They're denying the Lord's return in judgment upon sin. Okay, That's what the passage is saying. And what they're saying is, look, God's never done this before. You say that man is sinful, man has a fallen nature, that we are under his wrath. He's never judged sin before, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the creation. You're telling me I should be afraid that God's going to judge sin? He's never done it before. And Peter launches out <coughs> in that section by referring to the fact that he has done it before. And concerning that event which is obvious in natural creation, in the world, the geology that we see, there's an obvious indication that something cataclysmic happened. They are willfully ignorant 
of what took place, and they explain it away. Right? Willful ignorance is a strange term. Right? Usually, if you're ignorant, you don't have the, the, the workings of the mind being employed because you don't know. Ignorance. Here is a willful ignorance. They want to be will. They want to be ignorant. They're exerting their wills against what they're hearing in order to remain ignorant. And that is what you find in the scientific world. If we refer to science, I mean, the, the proper use of the word science would contradict what I just said. But in what we often refer to as the scientific world, men are, are exerting their wills. They're fighting against what they're seeing in order to remain ignorant. It's interesting that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul starts by saying, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. So a proper understanding of the Lord's return is what we are to strive for. And Paul's writing these things in order that we don't want to be ignorant. Here we're told in 2 Peter 3 that the ungodly are exerting everything within their will to remain ignorant concerning what they see in nature. Right? And so it isn't just that men deny the return of the Lord. They are denying the return of the Lord in order to try to somehow get out of their accountability before a holy God. So it isn't just that the Lord creates a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And that he's going to consume the old world. But he also is going to judge men for their sins. So it's, all that has taken, taken place. And they want to reject anything that they see in the world that would indicate God did this before. Anything that would give any, any palatability to the, to the account. I almost said story. I was told years ago, don't say the story of the flood. It's not a, it's not a story. It's an account. It's God telling you what happened. Usually when we talk about stories, it's lumped in with fairy tales. Right? It's not the story of the flood. It's the account of the flood. <laughs> That's what we find in the Old Testament. So they want to do everything that they can to explain that away. You'll often hear that the world went through an ice age or that the world was hit with a meteor and we, it killed everything, right? And the ironic thing is, is that in these places where they study the geology and you can go to them like the Petrified Forest or some other places where they have fossils and everything, in many of these places they'll actually tell you that this area was once underwater. <laughs> it's like, okay, there, were, there, were the, there was this woolly mammoth. I watched this program years ago, this woolly mammoth that was being unearthed in Siberia, right? And it was, it was, it was amazing because it still had green vegetation in its, in its mouth and stomach, right? So as they're, they're studying these things, they're like, this is amazing because it means a number of things. First of all, it means that this whole area had to have had green vegetation. And right now, as they're unearthing, they're actually like chipping away at the ice, right? There's nothing living in this area, right? In Siberia. And yet when they unearth this animal, it's still got green vegetation in its stomach. How in the world did this animal get up here? Right? So it implies a number of things. First of all, either it traveled a long way, which could not happen because it would decompose. Or the world was much different when this animal died. Right? And so they, were gonna, they, they led into the Ice Age and all this stuff. Well, the ironic thing was they could tell from the autopsy that the death of the animal was caused by drowning. And they began to do this digital re 
uh, re, they, they do it over again where you can reenactment, this digital reenactment of what happened to this woolly mammoth. And as I watched, I was just, I laughed, but it was laughing, feeling sad for them, right? So they have these, these digital woolly mammoths, and they said that they were all by this lake or this, po- this pile of water. And it happened that the moment that the, the asteroid hit the earth, they slipped in to this puddle of water and drowned. And the effect that the asteroid had immediately froze them. And that's how we find it today. And, and I just, I looked at that and I thought, first of all, I don't, that, that, wouldn't even, that wouldn't even hold true. Simply because of the bacteria that would have been on the body. There had to have been immediate, an immediate freezing. An immediate preservation of the animal in order to prove, in order to prevent the decay of the body. But it just proved to me what the scripture says, that these men who all reject the Lord, you don't find, you don't find men who believe in creation holding to this view. It's only those that want to reject what the scripture says, not only about creation, but especially about the flood. You say, why do they want to do it? Because if they acknowledge that God destroyed the world by the flood, then they have to believe that God's going to destroy the world again by fire, and he's going to do it because of sin. And so these things are proven in these passages. The new incorruptible body and death swallowed up in victory, 1 Corinthians 15. The rapture in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. The new heavens and the new earth and judgment for sin in 2 Peter chapter 3. And so all major eschatological events that we find in these passages are, 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 you can find them all in these three passages. Now, the reason why I say all major eschatological events happen at once is because of the language that is used in these passages. I believe that the, the language that is used connects all three. And you can't say that one happens without the other. And when you connect all three, that's why I say all major eschatological events happen at once. New body, death swallowed up in victory, the rapture and the creation of new heavens and the new earth and judgment for sin all happen at once. 1 Thessalonians 4 is the, is the passage that links them together. There are two uh, phrases that you will find in this passage that are very important. The first passage, or the first phrase that you'll find is the, the reference to the trump of God when this happens. Okay, in verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive, and so on. The trump of God is associated with his coming. Just that phrase, the trumpet of God. Okay, I'm not going to explain what it means. I'm not going to explain or ask what your interpretation of it. We're just taking the language. Okay? Your interpretation of what it means could come at a later point, but I want to just take the language. As God reveals it, this event contains this one aspect to it, that the trump of God is mentioned. The other word that you find in this passage is in chapter 5. Same context, continues on, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Okay, So this day that he's referring to, the rapture, not only is associated with the trump of God, but it's also said to be the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, and not only the day of the Lord, but a specific reference to it coming as a thief in the night. 
Okay? You may say that the day of the Lord means a lot of other things, but I can say that when you say the day of the Lord and then you say as a thief in the night, you're getting pretty specific as to how you view that day. Okay? Those are the two terms that are associated with the rapture. Now, when you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you're dealing now with the resurrection of the body, and more importantly, death swallowed up in victory... Listen to the language that's used. Behold, I show you a mystery, verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Okay? Now, you may say, well, that's the last trump, so there's multiple trumps. Just take, take the passage as it says. It's reference to the trump, the last trump. 1 Thessalonians 4 said... He's descending from heaven with, a, with the shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trump. Okay, I believe that the two passages are linked because of the reference to the trumpet. Now, the interesting thing is, is that here in the, on the one, in the one passage, 1 Corinthians 15, you have our new bodies being given and death swallowed up. There's no more death at this event. And it puts this event as happening at the same exact time as the rapture, which is often viewed by God's people as the beginning of a thousand years. The reference to Revelation chapter 20, the thousand year reign. Most people that hold to a premillennial view or a view of the millennium in this regard hold to the rapture as being the beginning of that thousand year reign. Then Christ comes back upon the earth and reigns for a thousand years. That kind of that kind of is questioned now if you connect these two passages, again, based upon the language, because in, in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. The traditional view of the millennium is that among the ungodly, you're still having people being born, there's some dying, more, and that goes on for a thousand years. If you're connecting the terms between the events, you can't find wedged in here anywhere a thousand years where people are being born, people are dying, people are being born, people are dying, people are dying in unbelief, people coming to Christ, people living on the earth in glorified bodies, some of the unconverted still coming to Christ. Now they're in Christ, but they don't have their glorified bodies yet. A lot of the stuff that we have been taught concerning eschatology doesn't work if you just take the language of the passages. And so it connects these two together, that language. 1 Thessalonians 4 is also connected to 2 Peter chapter 3 because of the use of the term, the thief in the night. I've read it earlier, chapter 5. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. You may have heard me reference that in 2 Peter chapter 3. The exact same term is used about the day coming as a thief in the night. Where... But Peter says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. One day is what the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some men can slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Exact same term. It's the exact same term. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that it's not going to overtake us as a thief. Right? We know it's coming. But it's still coming as a thief in the night. The same exact phrase. The one passage deals with the rapture. This passage deals with the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, which is supposed to be taking place at the end of the millennium. 
The very last of the last is the judgment for sin, creation of new heavens and a new earth. Again, if, the, if language means anything, how can you have the same term being applied to the very last day and then the same term being applied to a day that's a thousand years before when Christ supposedly comes and sets up his earthly kingdom? There's no reference any, to anywhere in these, in these passages. And again, these are epistles that are given to us to clearly establish doctrine. And I don't believe it's by coincidence that the terms that are used connect these three events. If 1 Thessalonians 4 uses the term thief in the night, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, and the trumpet of God, as, uh, referring to that event, and these other two aspects dealing with the Lord's return are also using that term and talking about that these things happen on that day. I don't see us having the ability to wedge in another period of time that deals with, say, if death is swallowed up in victory and this all takes place when the Lord descends from heaven and, and we call that the rapture, I think a lot of what is often implied in eschatology comes from these other unclear passages, passages from, from figurative books, from books that are intended to be taken spiritually or not literally. At the best, you can say it's unclear. I mentioned in Sunday school, John Calvin, maybe one of the, the most blessed and, and uh, that, that the Lord gave tremendous ability in interpreting the scriptures, wouldn't even write a commentary on Revelation because of how mysterious certain aspects of the book are. Why should passages from Revelation be used to stand the clear passages of the epistles on their head? I don't see a period of time wedged in between all these events. If language means anything, and again, you can maybe someone will say, well, this is what the day of the Lord means, and then you interpret it. Okay, that's fine, and we can talk about that. But just taking the language as we find it, I believe that the one conclusion you need to draw from these passages is that all these things happen at the same time. New, corrupt, new incorruptible body, death swallowed up in victory, the rapture, the new heavens and the new earth, and judgment for sin. That pretty much sums up all the, ma the major aspects of the Lord's return. And I think by comparing these three passages together and the language that's used, you have to say they all happen at once. And so when we as believers are looking for the coming of Christ, we're not looking for some kind of a, a period of time that's unfurled that, that is science fiction or that is some kind of a, 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 different, a different approach uh, to, to weigh on the earth. It's just, it's just, I think a lot of it is just fabricated. And it's a twisting of other passages of Scripture that aren't clear. And they were given in sections that were intended to not be clear that it requires comparing Scripture with Scripture to interpret it. And so therefore you shouldn't begin to formulate your, past, your, your doctrine in those sections, but you should interpret those sections based upon these parts of the Word, which are clear. And to me it's clear. Those terms are all interlocking these three passages, saying that all these events will happen at once. So all major eschatological events happen at once. The second thing we see is that the eternal state will be on the new earth. It sounds pretty simple because of 2 Peter 3, where there's a new heavens and a new earth created. I have heard some weird views put forth by evangelicals and fundamentalists about where we're going to spend eternity. Okay, I've, I've, I've heard some weird things, again, that 
it just, it like borders on science fiction, like Star Trek stuff. Like we're going to be going to different universes and do it. It's like, I don't know where they're they're getting this stuff. But again, let's use the New Testament and let's use the clear to let that guide our view concerning uh, the new earth and where we'll spend eternity. I believe eternal, the eternal state will be on the new earth for a number of reasons. First of all, we can do, deduce it from the nature of man. You say, what do you mean? Well, man was made from the dust of the earth. God, when he created man, created him from the dust of the earth, and his will for man, as we'll see in a minute, was that he, he, he'd be fruitful, multiply, and, and replenish the earth. His desire was to fill the earth. And that's the second thing, not just from the nature of man that he was created from the dust of the earth, but from the will of God for man before the fall. Before man even fell into sin. You turn back to it, Genesis chapter 1. You've heard the term that Christ is the great curse reverser, right? He reverses the effects of the curse and actually goes beyond the blessings that man knew before the fall because now man can't fall away again. He's confirmed in state. There's no, there's no possibility of ever, being, of ever being cast out again because we're in Christ and he kept the covenant, right? But Genesis chapter 1, you know, at the end of the end of creation, and it says, uh, you get to the end of, the, end of Genesis chapter 1, and so God created man, verse 27, in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and so on. That's, that is before the fall. You say, what was God's will for man before he fell into sin? His will for Adam and Eve was to fill the earth with a godly seed. That was his will. And that they would have the authority over the earth. When the Lord returns and he brings the souls of those who are already in Christ, who have died in Christ, who sleep in Jesus, to use 1 Thessalonians 4 language, those that sleep in Jesus, their souls Christ will bring with him. He's the only one that's going to have a body. Well, depends on what your view of, of Elijah is. But he may, he may have his original body. I think at that point, those that... Elijah and Enoch, their bodies will already be transformed when they come back. So the, the only one that has his body in the current state that it was when he, when he left was Christ. So he's coming. The souls of all of his people are coming with them. Their bodies are being raised from the dead. Then they which are alive and remain shall be, shall be transformed. And all of God's people who have been given to Christ before the foundation of the world in election will be with Christ at that moment. It's my interpretation, it's my understanding since 2 Peter chapter 3 also is dealing with this event that at that moment when we're meeting the Lord in the air he's creating a new heavens and a new earth in a moment. And then all of God's people in their glorified bodies having soul and body reunited in the air with the Lord new heavens, new earth created we come back to the earth with Christ, and reign with Christ forever. Why? Because it was God's will, even before the fall, that the earth be filled with a godly seed. Christ has fulfilled the terms of the covenant. And so when he comes back, 
He says, as it were, to the Father, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given to me. In one, in one grand moment of conquest, Christ not only finishes the work of redemption for his people, because our bodies being raised and transformed is referred to as their body, our bodies being redeemed. Go to Romans chapter 8. That word redemption is applied specifically to the new body that we'll get. Our bodies are redeemed. He not only accomplishes that, but he also fulfills the will of God from, from the, even before the fall for man, that now man will dwell upon the earth forever. And then, so it isn't just from the nature of man and from the will of God, but then from the word of God. Go to the end of the scriptures, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and notice sometimes, I'm not saying you have to turn to it now, because there's, it's, there's, I'm just giving you a generality. And sometimes consider all of the Genesis language that is used in those sections when it's describing the eternal state of God's people. Right? We'll eat of the tree of life. You know? That's one, one aspect. There's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil there anymore. It's only the tree of life, which is in the midst of the, of the paradise of God. We'll be able to eat from that. Adam couldn't eat of it. Why? Because after he fell into sin, the Lord pro- he prohibited him from eating it as an act of mercy. He placed an angel there to guard it, lest he should put forth his hand and eat and live forever. There was something about the tree of life that confirmed you in the state that you were in. God gave Adam that option to eat it before he fell, right? I personally believe that that was the other aspect of the covenant of works. That Adam could have chosen to eat of either tree. If he ate of the tree of life, it would have been viewed as obedience, And he would have been confirmed in that state. So his seed that would have come after him would have been confirmed in that state of holiness. But he didn't. He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and immediately died. And then what the Lord said is, in order to prevent him from being confirmed in this state, which is death, we have to block his access to the tree of life. We don't want him to eat it now. He can't eat it because if he eats it, he will. There's no hope of mercy. Because there was something about the tree of life that confirmed you. Made whatever, whatever condition of your nature was, that's the way you were forever. And so in an act of mercy, God prevented Adam and Eve from eating of that tree. But you get to the end of Revelation, there's no more tree in knowledge of good and evil. There's only the tree of life. What's that tell you? It tells you that the will of God for man, that he dwell upon the earth forever in holiness and righteousness is now being fulfilled because we can eat of the tree of life. Because we are confirmed forever in holiness because of our union with Christ. And so even that reference to the tree of life, it's just another indication that Christ is the great curse reverser and he's bringing back upon man these great blessings that were lost in the fall. The will of God for man dwelling upon the earth. And and go through the scriptures. A buddy of mine... Many years ago, I was talking to him about this very thing. I said, look, I think the eternal state's on the new earth. He's like, so do I. He says, I put, the, I put together this list of verses. I have it all at home on like a Word document of all the references that I could find that talk about heaven being on earth. And when you study through that theme, you'll, it's amazing how many references there are to inheriting the earth. 
the meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, promises that Abraham, that he should inherit the world, was not made to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. When you read the Old Testament passage, you think that it's only referring to the land where Abraham was looking, right? So you're thinking, oh, well, that's the promise of the promised land. Romans chapter 4 tells us, for the promise that he should inherit the world was not made to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham knew what God was saying when he said, look out upon this land and to thee and to thy seed will I give it. Abraham knew exactly what God was saying. It wasn't just that he was going to inherit this part of the earth. The whole world he was going to inherit. And he believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. So if you were to ask Abraham, Abraham, what has God promised you? Abraham could have stood upon any part of the earth and said, he promised me that I am going to inherit all of this because my seed will win it for me. My seed will merit it for me. His obedience, connected with his obedience, comes this promise that he is going to inherit the earth. And if I believe that promise and my trust is in Christ, that promise is made good to me. Therefore, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. It's just as if Abraham kept the law and merited that righteousness. Because it's his by imputation. Christ actually did it. But it doesn't diminish from the fact that it's ours as well. Because we're in him. So Abraham could look out, even though he knew he was a sinner, right? And you look at some of the things that God's people have done. Like David, he's the other one mentioned in Romans 4, right? He believed in, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, right? He knew what imputation was all about. You look at David, whew, there are times where you would not want David as your neighbor. <laughs> tell you that much right now. You wouldn't want him as your neighbor. There are a lot of unsaved people in this world I'd rather have as my neighbor than David. I'll tell you that right now based upon what I'm seeing in, 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 in different parts of his life. And yet David understood that the, the promise that's made is a promise that has been merited by someone else. That the, 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 the promises and the, the, the application and the, the enjoyment of those promises has been merited by Christ. And so therefore David, with all of his sin... And understanding that, that sin deserves to be punished could say, blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not sin. He's dealing with the other aspect of imputation. Abraham was dealing with the imputation of righteousness. Righteousness put to your account. There's another whole aspect of imputation that God does not put something to your account. And that is your sin. So that you can say, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You're not dealing with the word made in regard to our obedience, right? Because if you say that we're made the righteousness of God in him based upon our obedience, then you have to say that Christ was made sin based upon his sin, Okay? God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What's it mean? God viewed Christ as having broken the law for us. He was our substitute. He suffered for us. And God placed upon him 
the sins of his people. That's what it means when it says that he made him to be sin. There was no sin in Christ. You can't say Christ was the greatest sinner. But you can say that Christ suffered for all the sins of all of his people and he was rightly punished. Because the wages of sin is death. When Christ died, he died a physical death. He died under the hand of God for our sin. And he died justly because he's the sin bearer. The other flip side to imputation, and still I'm amazed by this. I still remember the period of time where I started to understand imputation of righteousness. If God punished Christ, who had no sin, he punished him because he took my sin. If God promises in his word to give life for obedience... How many times do you find that in the scriptures? Keep this law and live. Keep this law and live. The only way you and I can enjoy life is, is upon condition of perfect obedience to the law. When, it, when the scripture says, keep this law and live, I look at it and say, I can't live. I have no hope of eternal life because I can't keep it. If Christ bore my sin and then God judged him for that, the, the flip side has to be true. That if Christ merited righteousness, and that is put to my account the moment I believe, I have life. Is it because of what I've done? No. Just like it wasn't because of what Christ did that he suffered. You see, it's, 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 it's how God views you. We often would refer to the term prejudice, Right? While I was growing up, I was born in Philadelphia. There were, several, there were a number of times where prejudice overtakes, overtakes the heart. And you can say, oh, I'm not prejudiced, I'm not prejudiced. Look, you're always more comfortable around your own, right? And you can, I, could, I could hang out with people of different ethnicities and certain ethnicities that are, are rumored to cause trouble in the city, and you can, you can think everything's fine. You go walking through certain sections of that city at 2 in the morning... And you see a white guy walking down this side of the street and a few black guys over there, you're going to gravitate to the white guys. Why? Because we're all driven by certain prejudices. Now, it could be that those white guys would slip my throat and those guys on the other side of the street would be the nicest guys I'd ever see. But in my mind, I'm imputing certain things to them because of their skin color. And on the basis of how I view them, my actions are then following, right? They may be the greatest guys. They may have shown me where to go and what to do and, you know, if I was lost. But I'm governed by my implications of what they are based upon the skin color. It could be the furthest thing from the truth, but it affects my actions. That's what happens when we impute certain things to, to certain people and then on the basis of that treat them that way. That's why prejudice is so, it's so wrong. Because it doesn't even deal with the character of the person. You're dealing with, with judgments that are drawn that may be the furthest thing from the truth. In this regard, the truth is that I deserve hell. I deserve hell. The reality is Christ suffered my hell for me. And, he, and God put his obedience to my account. And therefore, I am as accepted, this is amazing, I am as, as accepted before God 
as his own son. I am accepted before God. God does not view me in any less of a fashion. He doesn't view me in any less of a fashion than the way he views his son. That's why he's called the forerunner. That's why he's called the firstborn. Right? If God has blessed Christ with all of these things, resurrection, ascension, glory, that is my lot. It has to happen to me as well. Why? Because he's already done it to Christ. And I'm in Christ. So then I can say like David, blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes not sin. It doesn't say blessed is the man who doesn't sin. Because we wouldn't have any hope. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. His sin isn't imputed to him. And I love quoting the old hymn writer, Augustus Toplady. I don't even know what the title is, but um, I think it's from Whence This Fear and Unbelief. Look it up sometime in the hymn book. It is some of the greatest theology in any hymn that you're going to sing. Top ladies asking where all this fear and unbelief comes from as a believer. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the father put to grief his spotless son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Okay, here we're dealing with how God relates to me. Why am I afraid? Is, am I going to be judged for my sin, which was already judged upon, laid upon Christ? Then he says, he starts to think. And he says, complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid, whate'er thy people own. How then can wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness, and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine. And then he says this payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. He can't judge me for the same sin which was already paid for by Christ. So where's all this fear and unbelief coming from? It's coming from not having a proper view of the work of Christ. And when you get your mind back to considering not only Christ took my sin, but he's given me righteousness. And then what God, ha- he, what God is obligated to do to me then, if my sin is gone and I am viewed by him as having righteousness, the last line of that hymn, top lady says, turn then my soul unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God since Jesus died for thee. It's a, it's, it starts by saying, from whence this fear and unbelief, and it ends, turn then my soul unto thy rest, the merits of thy great high priest that bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, and don't fear thy banishment from God. God can never cast me out. Why? Because Jesus died for me. Deals with double jeopardy. I can't suffer for the sins that have already been paid for. It's impossible. God would be unjust. So the more we meditate upon the work of Christ, the more we remember that Christ has merited all these things for us. And it's no different than the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. It's been given. It's given to those who who obey the law perfectly. You may not feel that way today, but I assure you, if your faith is in Christ, God views you as if you've kept his law perfectly. And on the basis of the perfect obedience to his law, you're going to inherit the earth.
You're the meek. That's where we'll be. That's our inheritance. Abraham believed that, that he would inherit the world. And so I, I believe that when you compare these things, and especially about the references to the, where the eternal state will be, it'll all take place at this one time, and where we will then be with Christ is upon the new earth. And then a little bit of speculation, although I don't believe it's complete speculation, but I believe by the time this is all said and done, that the, the days of man upon the earth preceding the eternal state will be exactly 7,000 years. You say, what in the world? Where did that come from? I thought we weren't supposed to date these things. Well, here's the, here's the thing. So I believe that the, the pattern is given in the scriptures that shows, uh, based upon the whole premise of the week, right? six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. I believe that there's a connection between a day and a thousand years in the scriptures. And most conservative uh, commentators and scholars put the creation of the world around 4,000 B.C., it's interesting that right around that time, that the years be, that would be before that, even the secular historians that have nothing to do with Christ or the gospel would refer to that period of time as prehistoric, which is interesting because what they mean by prehistoric is there's no record of man being on the earth before that time. Right around that time. You may differ a thousand years or so, but it's right around that time. Now, they believe man was on the earth for billions of years, right? But... For some reason, those billions of years, man was represented as some dumb guy who can't, didn't even have the ability to leave a record. That only started around 4,000 B.C. Prehistoric is before that. It's just ironic that conservatives put the creation of the world around that time. But I believe that by the time it's all said and done, that man will have been on the earth for 7,000 full years, 6,000 full years. One day is with the Lord is 1,000 years. You read that. In Second Peter chapter 3, we were discussing this a little bit earlier, that the, the term thousand, whether you're dealing with thousand years, uh, thousand generations, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, First uh, Chronicles 16, 15, that term is used to talk about thousand generations. It obviously isn't referring to only a thousand generations. It's a very flexible, it's a very loose term uh, that you're referring to, so that the, the, the term thousand is used in that regard. But... It's ironic that there are many times, or several times, where a thousand years is compared to a day, as, as with the Lord. You think even in Psalm 90, the prayer of Moses. Moses said, a thousand years are in thy sight as yesterday, when it is gone. Okay, so there, in that passage, a thousand years is compared to a 24-hour period. Second Peter chapter 3, a thousand years. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years. It was the Lord who created the seven-day week. Six days of that seven days, man is supposed to do everything he's supposed to do, and then the rest. And I think you can imply from the Scriptures that the world as we know it in this fallen state will be in existence for 6,999 years. And as soon as you get to the 7,000th year, the Lord's going to return. Because often, the Sabbath day is compared to the heavenly rest. Right? The eternal state. Now, having said that, Usher puts the creation of the world at 4004 B.C. Ken Ham puts it at 4000 B.C. Exactly. When I was studying with Dr. Allison in the seminary, he said there may be some gaps in the genealogies that would account for 100 or 200 years. So, we don't know when the world was created. Right? But, 
It's just another reminder to us that everything that we see unfolding in the world before us is all according to the plan of God. Man has a certain time to be on the earth. And I believe the Lord giving us that seven-day week, six days of creation, one day of rest, is a picture for us of the 6,000 full years that man will do everything. But as soon as we get to the 7,000th year, the rest will be enjoyed. And so I don't know when that'll be. Depending on the view of creation, it could be, you know, it could be as soon as tomorrow. It could be another 900 years. Yeah, I, I don't know when it'll be. My own view is it's probably going to be somewhere around eight or 900 more years. I could be completely wrong. But I do know this. Well, I should say I, I'm led to believe that when that day happens, that period of time will have, will have transpired. That one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. It's not given to us in that regard that we try to work out exactly when he's coming back, but just another encouragement to say we're right where God wants us. We're, we're right, and we're still in that season where man is commanded to, to do all your work. Any, any work that you're going to do is going to be during that period of time. It's, we're in those years. And for the unsaved, it's still another reminder that today is the day of salvation. Uh, there's a day coming that it won't be the day of salvation. It'll be the day of judgment. And when that time period is up, when man no longer works, it's over. It's done. We're still in that six-day week of working, laboring, the ability to enter into rest, right? Looking forward to the rest. God has given, us to, given that to us as a timetable. Of all the things we can say, it's another reminder to us of those that are unsaved. You can still enter into that rest. But when all of God's people eventually on that day enter into that rest, if you're still outside of Christ, there's no more rest. There's only judgment. We're still in the six-day work week. Sinners need a Savior. Christ is still offered in the gospel. So I trust that just these, some of these thoughts about eschatology, especially some of the earlier thoughts, I admit that the end, the last point is, is speculation, and it's not intended for you to, to create some hard and fast date or, or realm of theology, but I, I think it's just another reminder to us that the Lord has an exact time when he's going to come. And he's given it to us even in this figurative way based upon the six-day work week that we're right where we're supposed to be. So I trust the Lord will take these thoughts today and write them on our hearts for Jesus' sake. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for the hope that we have as thy people, that even though we deserve death and hell, Father, we thank thee for one who has made satisfaction on our behalf, our Savior Jesus Christ, and he has merited life for us. We rejoice this morning that we are found in him. As Paul said, and being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Father, we are glad today that we are the recipients of all the blessings of the gospel because of the successful obedience of our Savior Jesus Christ. Bless us today 
May the Lord's Day indeed be an encouragement to us where we not only are encouraged in the word, but we we can encourage one another and build each other up in our most holy faith. Take us from this place rejoicing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.